Welcome to How Science Happens, a podcast by Wally Paxton, DJ So, and Doug Tree, professors at Brigham Young University. In the podcast, we bring you stories of cutting-edge science as told by world-class scientists and engineers from around the world who are on the front lines doing the work. We explore the highs and lows of discovery and what makes science such an exhilarating and frustrating process for those who do it. And because we're nerds, maybe we'll even learn a little science along the way. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of How Science Happens. So my name is DJ So, I'm your host today. I'm also with Doc Trey. Hey everybody. What's up, Doc? Oh, hey DJ. Sorry, I jumped the gun. It's okay. So are you surviving during this final season? Oh, the I, final I, means final exams. Yeah, final exams. Oh, it gets better because I don't have to teach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm also with uh, Bhuvanesh Bharati. Uh, he is, so I wanted to have him as our guest because he's doing a lot of cool stuff. So, Bhuvanesh, how, how, how about you say hello to our audience? Hello, everyone. It's a, it's a pleasure to be uh, given an opportunity to talk to you. Thanks, DJ, for the kind in, uh, invitation. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, so let me introduce him briefly. So he has a bachelor's degree from in chemistry from Punjab University in Chandigarh, India. Am I saying it right? That's correct. Okay, so he also received a master's degree in the same university. He did his PhD in physical chemistry from, okay, let me try to say it right. He's a German. Institute, Institute für Chemie, Stransky Laboratorium, Technische Universität Berlin, Germany. But it is just Technical University of Berlin. Am I right? That's right. That's right. Okay. So he, he did a PhD in physical chemistry in Berlin. He also did, this is interesting. I'm going to ask you later, but he, you did a uh, postdoc in NC State and also in Shinshu University. That's interesting. Now he said, he's an assistant professor of chemical engineering at LSU. I really wanted to have you as, uh, as one of the guests to our podcast because, you know, I do also surface and uh, call it a surface science. And usually many people study equilibrium. So I like to do something like 25 degrees Celsius, 180 m, staying still, having equilibrium state. But you do a lot of kind of moving particles, which I never talk, uh, thought about. So this reason why I really wanted to have you here. So I'm going to ask you more about it, uh, talking about your one, uh, your specific, specific paper we, uh, you chose. But before we start, I'd like to ask you about how you became a scientist. So I in here in your CV you got a bachelor's degree in Chandigarh, India. Is that the place you you were grown up, you were raised? Uh, not really. So uh, Chandigarh is the capital city of a state called Punjab uh, in India, and uh, I did not grow up in in that city. It's very cosmopolitan, very big city. I, I grew up, uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, I think around seventy miles north uh north of chandigarh and uh again in the state of punjab and uh but you know it's it's the largest state university in my state so of course you know you have to go uh (laughs) join that university for your undergrad okay Mm -hmm. so is your hometown just more like urban setting like a chandigarh or is more like lots of hills and mountains and 
that made you run out of the field? What was your childhood for like? What would you do with your friends when you so, were in town? I would say it was more urban uh, oh, than okay. rural because, uh, you know, India is large country, both in terms of area and population. So we we were, our uh, city where, where I grew up is more like uh, around a million people uh, oh, really? in population. <laughs> so which is not super big city, if you think uh-huh. about it, from India because we are around 1.4 billion so uh yeah it was more of a urban setting and and as a as a child i used to love to go to uh you uh, know rural settings and and mountains my my grandparents used to live oh, in okay. mountains and i i used to love to go there every year and you know uh, all right then when did you find out that you are interested in like a math or physics or chemistry, like stars in the sky. When did you find that you were interested in those stuff? More like middle school. Okay. Uh, uh, before that, I was just interested in playing and having fun. <laughs> like most of like us, Like most kids. Say. That's right. I had no interest in studying before that. Uh, but... Uh, but in, in middle school, I started to uh, get more and more interested in in stem field in in specifically in science and specifically chemistry i was very interested in in that and i remember sometimes as as a child i used to you know take inks of different color in tiny little bottles and i tried to used to mix those uh, you know now if you think about it it's, it's kind of naive you know what would happen if you you know mix different colors just new colors emerge but that was at that time was fascinating for me mm-hmm. and how you have this emergence of multiple colors by mixing uh, inks so uh, yeah. yeah this is just one example what I, yeah. what I used to do so that's very fortunate of you because I we did this interview like this one many times and many chemical engineers like to blow stuff up. Uh-huh. But in your case, you're just mixing stuff. I mean, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> he's, the, he's, he's a chemist. He's more sophisticated, DJ. The chemical engineers yeah, we talk to, he's more they're, delicate. they're a little bit, you know, the lower brow, you know. So Yeah. yeah well, I used to be a chemist, as I, I would like to say that. But you know, I don't know what I am now. Uh, it's okay. hard to say. <laughs> no. Yeah, so. we are just scientists. That's right. All right. So, but out of all these subjects, I know that. So, of course, I don't know too much about India, but I heard that there's a lot of push for engineering. That's the reason why many students choose to do engineering. Then many students like to do like electrical or computer science. But why did you decide to major in chemistry? So in my childhood, my father actually always wanted me to be an engineer. And uh, my mom was more easygoing. My mom was, okay, you know, you do whatever you want. You don't have to do engineering. So I tried to get into engineering schools. And in India at that time, it was way, way harder to get into good engineering schools. So, you know, there are IITs there at that time. When I was there, it was like six, seven IITs. So they are probably like, you know, 1,000 places and they are like 200,000 people, 300,000 people writing, you know, competing for those uh, positions. So uh, I did not get into those. Uh, and 
I just didn't want to go to, you know, class two school and do engineering for the sake of doing engineering. For me at that time, it was very important to be in a premier institute. Uh, and whatever do, I do, I wanted to do my best in that. So that's why at the end, I went to, um, uh, to, to sciences. Uh, I was, you know, I was getting some, you know, uh, engineering positions, but not in IITs. And that was my, my, my goal at that time. If I want to do engineering, I want to do from IIT, otherwise I don't want to do. Okay. So... Yeah, but I was always, I, I knew I want to do either chemistry or chemical engineering. That's, okay. Yeah, that's right. right. So probably you worked hard during your the bachelor, the, the undergraduate schools. But I mean, why did you decide to go to graduate school? Because for me, in my family, so I don't know if you have any influence. You have a friend or family, because in my family, so in my siblings or my father or all my uh, the past generations, there was a nobody in my family who had a, uh, a degree. Uh, they don't have any advanced degree, like a master's degree, a PhD. But I wonder how, why you decided to do the graduate study. So a lot of influence uh, on my career path comes from my sister. So I have an elder sister. She's three years older than I am. Oh, okay. And she went to medical school and she's a medical doctor. And uh, at that time, somehow she never wanted me to go to medical school. She wanted me to study, but not do medical school, but go to uh, either engineering or sciences or uh, do something else. Uh, and uh, because I think she was not that good at math and I was <laughs> at that point. So that's how, uh, that's my problem. Uh, she always wanted me to do something uh, in in more applied kind of work. And when I started my undergrad uh, in chemistry, I, I it was fun. Learning was a lot of fun for uh, for few, first few years. But at some point, you still have that thirst. You know, you read books, you learn something from the book. That's great, but that does not satisfy sometimes your you know, desire to learn more, right? So specifically, when I was in my undergrad, I used to work with a professor in my university. Uh, and I was synthesizing at that point, you know, mixing a bunch of chemicals, and I was working on the synthesis of silver nanoparticles. Uh-huh. And uh, some of you might know that silver nanoparticles, when you synthesize them, if they are in some certain specific regime, certain specific shape, they are yellow in color because of surface plasma resonance, right? And this simple transformation in the property of the bulk material when you actually cut it down to nanoscale was fascinating for me. And I wanted to learn more about these things that how you can... You know, how you can take a big, large piece of metal and start breaking it down to nanoscale. And suddenly, its optical properties change. Its, its electronic properties change. Why do they change? Right? So I did not really at that point understand these basic things, but I wanted to learn. So though that specific experience of being able to work in the lab with the experienced researcher was the primary driving force why I went to graduate school. 
Okay, so did you do the, your master's degree with the same professor? That's right. That's right. That's okay. right. That's right. That's right. Well, why did you decide to go to Germany to pursue your PhD? Because, so you may have, I mean, India has a lot of good universities as well, but is there a particular reason why you chose Germany or the specific institute and so forth? Yeah, so, so it's, I never wanted to go outside India when I was studying because uh, I'm raised by my mother. My father passed away when I was 13. So um, we are raised by her and I wanted to always stay close to her. So I never applied anywhere. I didn't really take GRE. I didn't write any applications to U.S. universities. But I applied to India for PhD programs and I did get into some of the top-notch uh, schools, including IIT Delhi, uh, uh, for a PhD program. But at that point, the same professor with whom I was working, he uh, showed me this opportunity at TU Berlin and the and a critical point of, uh, a, a critical point in my decision was also that PhD in Germany is three years. It's not, it's much shorter. And, you know, in Europe, the philosophy is that if you spend seven years doing PhD, of course, you can do a lot. But now they're, you know, moving to this philosophy that you have three years, tell us how much you can do in three years and what you can do. So they are changing the philosophy, how PhD work is actually looked upon. So that was pretty attractive to me that, you know, I would go and get a reputable uh, uh, PhD from really good university. If you look at, you know, TU Berlin, TU Berlin came into existence after, uh, after, uh, after World War, right? And, but it, it was, you know, called some other uh, name, but it has around 10 Nobel laureates associated with its name, right? For example, transmission electron microscopy, right? We use every day. That was invented at TU Berlin, right? So it's a, it's a world-class school. And at that point, my plan was I would go there for three years and I would come back and become professor in India somewhere. But it didn't really happen that way. You know, that's how it goes. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's really out of context, but... So you had the desire to be close to your family, but can I ask you where your mother is now? Uh, my mother is still in India. So, so uh, how does she feel about that? How do you feel about you in the United States, which is halfway around the world? <laughs> eventually, eventually, I plan to have her come over. So I'm an I'm American citizen now. So uh, she can come and live with me. But you know, sometimes you need to make hard decisions. Or I'd say either at some point you need to make decisions on what do you want to do in life. I could, of course, live live in India and be very close to my mom, which would give me personal happiness. But would my career be this good at that point? I'm not fully convinced. Right. So because of the lack of resources and all other issues. Yeah. Uh, so I had a similar plan as you did. So I wanted. I always wanted to have a PhD and I was always want to be a professor in Korea. But mm-hmm. later on the plan changes, you have to uh, what is best for your career. Of course family is important, but we have a Skypes and all these technologies. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it just become easier to be connected. 
That's right. I call my mom every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Day. Yeah, yeah, every I mean, day. They make, <laughs> you know what? They, you're making me guilty because the last time I talked to her, it was about three weeks ago. <laughs> Actually, my wife calls my mother more often than I do. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I think I'm going to call my mother tonight. <laughs> good, good. I, I, I'm glad that I inspired you. Okay. Well, we know at least one good thing has come out of the podcast today. DJ's, yeah, DJ's yeah. going to call his mom. <laughs> All right. So mm-hmm. let me go back to your the PhD. So you like to, uh, again, so you're, you like to be the best, with best as you can be. Then you chose this uh, university, uh, this, the, this PhD program. Probably you studied something related to COVID and surface science. Can you tell us a little bit about your research as PhD student? Yeah. So when I was in my master's, I was I told you I was working. You know, in my undergrad, in my master's, I was working on these silver nanoparticles and synthesis. But at that time, we had huge. Uh, there was big big challenge of controlling the size and dispersity and and mm-hmm. and shape of of silver particles and i did not know exactly how to do that i did not know enough physics of doing it that's when i started my phd at technical university of berlin and i joined the group of uh, professor gerard findenegg so he is very well known in in college community uh to and in terms of what he does in studying those interactions. So he was not really doing any particular synthesis per se, but he was specifically studying how surface adsorption takes place, uh, let's say surfactant adsorption and at nanoparticles or in mesioporous materials. And what are the physical and chemical properties of those adsorbed molecules at the interface? He was specifically studying these. So, so, which, so, ahead, I, so sorry to interrupt you. I, I just want to make sure that we're, uh, we don't, that, that I, I clarify because I want to make sure I can follow. So you were saying that in your master's you were doing, uh, you were working with silver nanoparticles. And if I understood right, you said that the problem there was uh, the size and the, dis, the, disper, the dispersity. So the, the variation of the size, right? So you might have particles that are spanning from, I don't know what it would be, several hundred nanometers to several hundred microns, something like this. And then you have like a wide range of the sizes, right? And then, and so, and, and then if I understand right, so are you saying that that's then related to surface treatments? So basically like if you, if you put, you know, certain surfactants in that, that will bind to the particles that can control the processes by which they're either growing or, uh, I, I assume it's growing, but maybe it's other things that divide, you know, if you're, if you're getting them to splinter and make smaller, but basically what you're doing at surfaces is controlling how their, uh, the size is changing, which allows you to both change size and dispersity. Is that correct? Did I summarize that? All right. That's absolutely right. That's okay. absolutely right. You explained it better than I did. Okay. Well, I'm, <laughs> no, well, you explained it. I'm anyway, I'm just trying to like, uh, sort of summarize to make sure that, that, that I'm following. That's right. Perfect. All right, sorry, sorry to interrupt, DJ. Maybe you can re-ask okay. your question. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think I can. I mean, please, can you continue on with your? Yeah. So I started I started as a graduate student in two thousand nine, middle two thousand nine, uh, in his group, and specifically to 
to look at the surface adsorption process. So for example, when you add surfactant during synthesis of nanoparticles or, or post-synthesis nanoparticle, how do, do those molecules bind to the surface of nanoparticles? And what is the physical state of those molecules at that interface, at that nanoparticle surface? And we used a lot of uh, neutron scattering to do that, a small angle neutron scattering to do to do these studies. And you do uh, neutron scattering is not that you have something in your cellar, right? So you need to go and do the experiment at, uh, at uh, essentially a nuclear power plant or an, essentially a reactor, nuclear reactor. And there are only very few facilities in the world. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that, and that me i traveled across europe a lot uh because i used to go to switzerland uh to psr switzerland i used to quite often go to switzerland in psi villigan uh it's uh and do uh our experiments there i've, I've been to uh ill grenoble france many times to do experiments i've been to llb uh, which is uh outskirts of paris in france mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that was a lot of, uh, you know, that project was a lot of fun. Not only that it was really hardcore science that I wanted to learn, but also gave me opportunity to to travel across Europe, many countries. So it was a lot of fun working on that topic. Great. Then, so, so I, I'm trying to find out where you, so I know that the paper we're going to talk about is about active quality particles. But where did you pick up your active coronal particle ideas? Is it during your postdoctoral studies? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in in fact, my first article uh, that we published on active particle it's really from my independent career. Before uh, that, okay. I, I was working on external field driven assembly and external driven effects on colloidal particles, but I never worked on these active particles and self-propelling particles before. Since after I started my group, I, I started working on the topic. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so, so somewhere, so it sounds like, so somewhere along the way, you went from just controlling the size and the dispersity to self-assembly of particles. Uh, That's right. Okay. That's right. So, so, at nanoscale, I was interested in learning how this adsorption takes place and how individual particle dispersion behaves and how is the dispersibility. The next step was, what if you start mixing two? How would they actually, how multiple, or let's say particles of different origin would interact with each other? And based on their, on their interactions, you can have ordered assembly, you have disordered assembly, or you have no assembly at all, right? So uh, that's the connection there. So once you actually know what's on the surface, how one type of particle are behaving, you start mixing them and you start looking at the interactions that drives under some conditions, drives the assembly process. So we used, in fact, external fields. When I was a postdoc at NC State uh, with uh, Professor Orlan Velev, uh, in chemical engineering, at that point, we were looking at uh, how to use magnetic fields to uh, to drive uh, the assembly of some ultra-flexible uh, magnetic structures, such as magnetic nanoparticle assembly we looked at. 
So if I understand correctly, so you are interested in making some kind of structure out of quality particles. To be able to do that, it'll be better if you can control these particles here and there to make a structures. That's how you you got interested in active particles. Is that's right? right. That's right. So uh, in my, in fact, I teach an undergraduate uh, college and interface engineering class. And the first example I give them is the structural color. For example, uh, the color, the shimmery color of opals, right? So uh, they are essentially, it does not come from individual component. There is no dye in it. The color comes from the structure. So because those opals are essentially made of silica nanoparticles around 200 to 300 nanometers diameter that are assembled in a highly ordered crystalline array. So when the light falls on it, it's, it's only certain wavelengths get, uh, wavelength of light gets reflected, which depends on the you know, uh, particle size, its orientation, all these things. So that's why you get uh, this color but there is no dye in it. And it, it's just one example. In nature is full of the, this uh, uh, structural color. For example, half of the birds that we see outside, half of the, the beautiful colors in their wings, most of it is from structure, not from dyes. So uh, it's very important to control the structure. Right? This is just one example that you, you can visually see uh, the impact of structure on some property. But uh, our world is full of these type of examples. Yeah. So recently I was watching YouTube video and it does video is about why there's no color blue in nature. So, I mean, talking about animals don't have a color blue, but there are a few exceptions. Some moths and some butterflies is blue. It's not because of their pigment is blue. It's because of structure. They have uh, some kind of nanostructures which kind of bounce up the observe everything and the bounce of a blue only so that's right probably yeah so opal i mean you talked about the structures and the color in the opal and the problem here is that is basically that has to happen by coincidence in nature this region opal is expensive that's right yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so the aim essentially, this is one example, color, but you can control a lot of properties by organizing uh, nanoscale building blocks in a specific fashion. You can get a lot of unique properties out of those. So that's, that's what I did in my postdoc essentially. So since you talked about the control of the particles, what about we jump into your, one of the papers you sent us? So it is this paper you published in 2000. 19 in Nature Communication. The title of this paper is Directed Propulsion of Spherical Particles Along Three-Dimensional Helical Trajectories. So I really like the, uh, the titles because there's a no jargon in here. So in the, if you read the papers, sometimes you know you have to at least read the abstract to understand what's going on in, in this paper. So but I can I can tell that what's going on in this uh, in this uh, paper just by taking with the title, so I really liked it. But of course, I have a lot more questions. So, but I, first of all, I'd like to, basically you're trying to have the helic, helical motion of the particles. But I, first question I had when I read this, uh, read the title is because why do you like to have a helical motion instead of this if you want to do, we talked about making structures and formations, 
it is it better to have a kind of linear motions uh, up and down and so forth so that we can make uh, the formation or structure we want why helical so that's a that's an excellent question and and when i started my group back in 2016 uh, uh i was fascinated by these non-equilibrium behavior of microorganisms right so they actually have this swimming behavior if you bacteria uh, specifically let's say sperm molecules they actually swim in in liquid and as a chemical engineer we know how hard it is it's sw- uh, swimming at low Reynolds number right it's like human trying to swim in honey right it's very hard to do it but if you look at nature they do it very efficiently but we don't have those capabilities yet in synthetic world one key feature of the swimming of these microorganisms and specifically sperm molecules they tend to swim along helical trajectories and the evolutionary aspect of the swimming in helical trajectories that the rotational component of the helix allows them to scan three dimensional space for the uh, food if i may call that essentially scan the direction of chemical gradients so once they actually scan that direction determine the direction of chemical gradient they align their body and they swim up the gradient hence it actually helps with this process called chemotaxis and chemotaxis is where you know then microorganisms swim towards their food they essentially these are all chemical gradients they actually sense in three dimensional space so helical motion itself is a very important part of it and at that point time 5 years ago when i started my group there was no uh no synthetic system that could mimic this motion it's simple motion right there were helical shaped particles that would swim along linear trajectory but there was nothing that a simple particle would swim along helical trajectory right so that's why i started working on it and it, the the objective was not that we would actually mimic the properties of the behavior of cell but with the very simple principle that can we actually mimic this motion in in synthetic objects or not okay so so you told me that you didn't find any particles i know that there has been a lot of active particles you know that the people make a genus particles one side is about the platinum coated to induce this kind of oxygen generation and so forth but you told me that there's no one who did the helical motion and but you did it particular this particular kind of particles and did you expect that the particle you made gonna have a helical motion so first of all first of all can you tell me what kind of the particles you prepared and can you tell me if you expected that or you designed specifically you intended to design that shape specifically so that you can have a helical motion did you expect all of them yeah so the particles we use are polystyrene essentially polymer microspheres that have a triangular metal patch on right so we are not the first one the, these type of particles are called metallodielectric particle metal because of the patch and the rest of the particle is dielectric 
part. So we are not the first one to work with these particles. In fact, they've been used from last 10, 12 years as, as model system to study active propulsion and swimming. Uh, so what happens is if you take, let's say, a genus particle where one hemisphere is metal, one hemisphere is polymers, you put that in dispersion and apply a high frequency uh, AC electric field, essentially alternating current. And frequency I'm talking about is kilohertz, very, very rapidly changing polarity of the field. Uh, they actually tend to swim uh, in along a straight line, right? Uh, but Again, the problem, when I started the group, the issue was, you know, there are so many swimmers, either they swim along a straight line or they are super diffusive. Essentially, their trajectory is completely random, like diffusion, but their effective energy is more than uh, Brownian diffusion, essentially randomly diffusing particles. Basically, you can... you can make them move along chemical gradients, but they sort of randomly you know, orient because of some reason, right? And then that causes them to explore space faster, but you can't really control where they go exactly. Is that correct? That's right. right. That's right. That's right. So uh, at that point, uh, I started looking into, I had to choose one method, which propulsion method I would use to power these uh, active particles. I went again, because I had some background in electric fields, how electric fields work. At that time, I worked on electric field-driven assembly. I had this experience, but never on propulsion. So I went back and to the drawing board and said, okay, how can we modify the simple genus particle where you have one hemisphere metal, one hemisphere is polymer? How can we redesign the particle so it performs certain desired motion? Essentially, this in, in, in terms of physics, it's called you know, breaking the symmetry of these particles, right? We broke the symmetry of the particles further and we designed these triangular patches on the particle. And we expected them definitely to rotate at that point. We did not exactly know at that point that they would still perform helical motion. And, and uh, it was, in fact, to be honest, it was uh, surprising to us as well at that time that just tweaking the symmetry of the patch, we were able to get these complex helical motion from a simple spherical particle. Right. So I noticed that you have a triangular shape, but I mean, so you basically coded the metal parts and the polystyrene particles, but I believe there's a way you can make an actual genus particle. Half sphere is polystyrene, half sphere is metal. But if you have that theoretically, would, you, would it have the helical uh, motion or what do you expect? So if we have this half genus, uh, essentially a genus particle, uh, and that's named after the two-phase Roman god, where you have half is metal, half is polymer, you have linear motion. And it's, uh, if you apply the field, what happens is electric field would change the polarization of different domains on a particle. So metal is a better conductor of electricity. When you apply electric field to the metal, it will polarize much more easily in comparison to a polymer. So if you have a genus particle, one metal half is very easily polarized, the polymer half not so much. 
So what happens is, you know, because water is a polar medium, it likes to actually go to the regions of high electric field intensity, essentially to the velocity of water around the metal half is going to be much higher than the polymer half because metal half is more polarized. So effectively what happens at that point is this fluid flow imbalance around a Janus particle pushes the particle forward at this in this low Reynolds number region. So it's really, essentially, it's not really electric field that pulling or pushing the particle. It's the fluid flow that okay. electric field generates that pushes the particle forward. Okay. So in your paper, you d- describe the, this motion in four different, with the four different parameters, which is the radius of the helix, helix over the motion, and you there's a pitch of the helix, and also there's the angular velocity of the particles, and you also have a linear velocity uh, through the through the axis of the helix. So you're able to control those things, th- those parameters. But I'm just wondering. So basically, you're controlling the angular velocity and the linear velocity with the field, not That's with the right. Not with the the shape or the uh, friction coverage of the metal on the polystyrene, but I'm just wondering, what if when you do the deposit uh, experiment, when you do the depositing, what if you make that triangle uh, triangle patch a little bit thicker, but less than that, three times thicker than the particles you ever used? I mean, would it have the same effect as if you have a more coverage, or what do you expect? That's uh, that's an interesting question. So what matters is the conductivity of the patch. And as we make it thicker, I would assume the conductivity will go up. But there is a trade-off to this thing. If we make the patch too thick, because usually we carry out these experiments in aqueous dispersion. So essentially you have particle dispersed in liquid and there are multiple particles. Once you have these thick metal patches, Usually the van der Waal forces between metal and metal between multiple particles is very strong. They tend to aggregate. So essentially they would clump together. They won't exist as individual blocks. So, and they do perform really complex motion, but at that point it's very, get, it gets very hard to understand that why this is, why certain specific trajectories taken because of this aggregation behavior. But, what about theoretically, you have only one particle? Mm-hmm. Theoretically, then, its speed should increase, theoretically, yes. Okay. Yeah. Then what but, about the radius? Do you think it's going to be the same or maybe if it rotated fast? Probably you expect it rotated fast. That's right. The angularly and also linearly. That's right. But, okay. But, right. But, but, the, but the pitch and the radius of the helix mm-hmm. would depend on the shape of the patch not on the thickness of the patch. Okay, that's interesting. So basically you have a pretty good idea about how to control uh, these particles then? Yes, yes, uh, to a degree, I would say. Okay. <laughs> yes. So that leads me to another question about what are, what are other cool particles you are working on right now? Because it seems like you have a good idea about how to control particles. Uh, is there any other cool particles you're working on? Or do you know anybody who's working on really cool particles like this? Yeah, so uh, we are also working on some 
um, part because he recently published an article on ellipsoids. It's the it's if you think about it, it's the simplest anisotropic particle or shaped particle you can make. You can deform a sphere to make an ellipsoid. You just stretch it from one side and make a prolate ellipsoid. We looked at its propulsion and. Uh, we are working on some pyramid-shaped chiral particles as well. I have a colleague here, uh, Kevin McPeak, who is uh, who's an expert on the synthesis of chiral materials. So I'm rec- I recently started working with him, and he can actually very precisely control the shape of, let's say, pyramid particle and and their dimension. So we are starting to look into into that aspect with uh, if what's the effect of chirality of the particle on helical propulsion. Okay, so the one last thing I'd like to ask you about this paper is that, so you did the experiment with membranes. So can you tell me more about it? Because it was really interesting that if you have a linear motion, I mean, it wouldn't go through the membranes, but if you're helical motion, you know, it goes through the membrane better why this is happening so uh, that's an interesting question uh, and it took me a while to understand the physical mechanism of why why this is happening as well so i give this example to my students for example if we we are in on bourbon street on mardi gras in new orleans right so it's a crowded place you can't really if you try to cross the street bourbon street on mardi gras it's next to impossible Right. So if you try to run in a straight line, you'll encounter another person and you may fall down. You may not be able to go much further away, right, in uh, across the street. But if you have if you have a curvilinear path, you have some kind of uh, <clears throat> a degree of freedom that you actually go around some people. You may be able to go much farther away. There is no guarantee you'll be able to cross the street. Uh, but you'd be able to, you know, go through much further into into the street, and we use exactly the same principle. What I believe in our case is that if you have a particle which is propelling orthogonal to a membrane, if it's propelling in a linear fashion, then the projection area matters. So essentially, membrane has randomly distributed pores. Right, so it has a projection that actually a, a given particle has on the membrane, and it can scan only, let's say, in case of sphere, pi r square area of the membrane. However, if it's propelling in a helical trajectory, it has much larger projection area and can scan much larger space on the on the membrane. Oh, okay. So it's because of this larger sampling area a helical particle can have that it allows it to scan the membrane and look for for the openings in this case pores okay. and you know tunnel across. Yeah. So if we think about membrane pores as a cylindrical straight line, if that is the case, this because when I think about membranes, we think about the straight last straight cylindrical uh, uh, straight channel through the some solid. If that is the case, I thought that if you have a helical motion, there will be you will have a less chance go through due to uh, cylindrical po- holes. However, in your case, you have a basically random holes here and there. If that is the case, doing the, some kind of helical motion has a higher chance 
of yeah. going through the membrane. Yeah, it's it's like you right. have like a you have a sponge, right? And a sponge is more like a maze than it is like a road, right? And so you're trying to make your way through the maze, and so you know you keep taking these turns, you know, around, and you t- and you get to find a new path as opposed to just ramming into the wall, right? Of 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 the membrane. That's right. All right. Thank you for your answers. So to close this uh, conversation, we have a one, one last, last question. So think about yourself at a high school, second year in high school or something. Mm-hmm. Then if you go back to the time, then if you, you cannot choose chemistry or chemical engineering, what would you do? So if you go back into time, you cannot do something related to chemistry or physics or, so forth, or engineering. So mm-hmm. what would you choose? That's a that's a hard one actually. Uh, I would still like to do the same what I did, but if I cannot, yeah. I would probably like to do computer programming. Oh, okay. Because I I still love pro- computer programming, and and that's something uh, that fascinates me even now. And I don't I'm not really an expert. I don't know how to code much. I know a little, but not much. But that still fascinates me. And mm-hmm. and, uh, and VR, I believe we are only at the surface for uh, in exploring the capabilities of uh, that computation provides us, not only in understanding science, but also impacting life and exploring space in all kinds of fields. There is an inherent role of computation. Uh, and uh, I, I, if I could... If if I uh, I was given the opportunity that I could not study science or or uh, specifically chemistry or chemical engineering, I would do program. Okay, computer is still science. <laughs> uh, yeah, in principle, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, thank you, Bhuvnesh, for your time today. So our guests today have been Professor Bhuvnesh Bharti. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time, and it, this has been a lot of fun. You can find the out more about uh, the Bhuvneshis and his work in the show notes for this episode at anchor.fm How Science. So you've been listening to How Science Happens with uh, DJ So, Doc Tree, and also uh, Professor Bhuvnesh Party. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating as this helps others find the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of How Science Happens with your hosts, Wally Paxton, DJ So, and Doug Tree. For more information about the podcast, the hosts, or our guests, please visit our website at bit.ly slash howscience. For additional comments or questions, we can be reached by email at howscience at byu.edu.